As we continue down the fast track today, we're going to meet a number of people who might feel just like that song, saying, I, I don't know if I believe. I've heard about God. I've heard some of these promises. Is he really going to come through? And as I thought about the fast track, I mean, I, I don't know if this is cheating, but I think the fastest track sometimes when I'm reading a book, don't judge me for this, turn to the last page and see what it says, right? Where does this all end up? And so I'm actually on the second to last page where one of the final things that God says is that God himself will be with them and be their God. And then he describes how there is no more pain, no more evil, no more tears. It's a picture of heaven that is built around the idea that God is with us. In fact, one of the things that we see from these promises is that ultimately, God keeps every promise by keeping one promise, to be with us. And so, I, I don't know, maybe you're wrestling with that too, saying, I don't know if I believe, or, or maybe I believe this part, but I'm not sure about that part. And I think when I've wrestled with that, things like this, when I, when I skip to the last page to see how the promises are fulfilled, how does it all come together, even when I'm wrestling with if I believe, there's a part of me that wants to, that wants to know that that is true, that wants to know that is possible. And today we're actually going to meet four people who understand it just like that. Because Daniel feels isolated, wondering if God is going to come through. Esther cowers, wondering if following God's plan is really the right move, even when it's not safe. Ezra is a man who's filled with regrets on the things going on around him. And Nehemiah is a man who dwells on his fears, his uncertainties, but also his hopes. And each of them, as we move through, just like we have seen from Adam to Abraham, Noah, Jacob, and Moses, David, and Solomon, all of these people whose lives we've studied are pointing forward to its fulfillment in Christ. So let's go back to our map. Let's try to get the big picture. Because I know that on, on one layer, this, this map can be very confusing, but it helps you understand where we've been. Because all the way back toward the beginning of history, there was this family from whom God said, I'm going to bring the Messiah, the Savior, the Fixer. That's Jesus. He's protected that family because he has decided that Jesus is going to come from that family line. They go into Egypt where we met Joseph. As Moses brings them out, they wander through the wilderness until finally they get to the promised land of Israel. That kind of New Jersey looking thing in the middle there. And in fact, it is really only about the size of New Jersey. And yet God chose this as the place to confirm for his people, I am with you. This is where we can live together just like it was in the Garden of Eden, just like he promises at the end of time as we just saw. Only problem was that through the time of the kings, his people became disobedient and ultimately were carried off into captivity. Some of them to Assyria, some of them to Babylon, and then Babylon takes over Assyria and so now all of them are in isolation. All of them have been separated from, separated from the place, the country, the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, where we know that God is with us. 
And so it begins to raise the question, is God still with us? Is God still with us in Babylon? Is God still with us when we feel isolated? When we feel alone? When we feel like he's not in the circumstances of our life and maybe he's not there? See, it's into this moment steps a man named Daniel. Now, Daniel is perhaps the most famous for one story where he finds himself in the lion's den. And I've really been practicing my lion, so I, I hope you guys like this. <laughs> Look at how angry that lion looks. You see, Daniel found that he was a man who, although he was isolated, he was unwilling to compromise. He was going to obey God even when the king made a law that said you cannot bow down or pray or worship anyone except the king. You see, Daniel believed that God was the king of kings and for that, he is thrown into the lion's den. But it's there in the lion's den that something that Daniel had believed about God turns out to actually be true. Because Daniel's life was a whole lot more than just this story that he may be most famous for. Because he spent a full night in the den of the starving lions. But it says that the Lord, God, closed their mouths. And the next morning when the king who threw him in there came to find Daniel who was actually his friend and saw that Daniel was okay, he recognized and declared for his entire kingdom, God is who he says he is. The God of Daniel is the true God. See, Daniel learned our first promise today, that God promises he is in control. Now, there are times where it feels like he's not. I know that Daniel, as he heard this law made, could wonder, where is God when there's a law that says I can be killed for worshiping him? I mean, that's not something that we really experience here. Where is God when I'm in a pit with hungry lions? You know, and maybe it's not lions in your life, but there are certainly things that feel like lions. A job loss, a broken relationship, a diagnosis. Where is God when I'm surrounded by lions? But Daniel had actually written something himself several years earlier, actually under a different king. In fact, from the historical record, it seems that Daniel served under no less than five kings and possibly as many as eight or nine. That everything around him kept changing. The leaders kept changing. The laws kept changing. And yet he believed that God remained the same. In fact, this is what he said a few years earlier that was proven true in the lion's den. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. Right, so the, the message of the Bible includes the fact that it is God who lasts forever. Whatever else is going on on earth. And it is he who has might. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. Daniel certainly saw that. And raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And light dwells with him. You see that promise again that God is with us. That Daniel, even in the midst of all of these moments, is still with God. 
that kings come and go. God raises them up and tears them down, but God is always there and God is always in control. In fact, one of the things that Daniel really is famous for is that he's what's known as a prophet. Now the prophets in the Bible were people who essentially predict the future because God has told them what the future is going to be like. And so Daniel's making all these predictions about kings. And it's, it's sort of like we joke in Cincinnati, hey, if you don't like the weather, you know, just wait a couple hours. Like Daniel's life literally was, hey, if you don't like the king, <laughs> get, just wait a couple hours, give it some time, we'll have somebody new. In fact, his prophecies are so specific that there are, or there are even stories that Alexander the Great, when he read the book of Daniel, like realized it was about him, even though it had been written hundreds of years before. See, the Bible wants to set up that evidence so that when we read something like Daniel, you find these prophecies, these predictions, and you say, really? Well, the people at, at the time of Daniel would say that too. They would say, am I really supposed to believe you, Daniel? And so God gave his people instruction that when a prophet speaks, something of that is going to be fulfilled in the near term. Some of that has to, have hap has to happen in their lifetime so that we know they really are a prophet from God and not just some guy on the street corner with a sandwich board yelling at you through the car window, right? <laughs> but that some of it is still to come. There's sort of this already fulfilled but not yet fulfilled stuff. And so Daniel was verified within his own lifetime but also after his lifetime. And God gives that as evidence to help us trust him about things he would say to you and I that would be true about our own hearts and also true for our future. In fact, one of the coolest examples of this that shows up in Daniel's life, there's, there's a king that Daniel talks about named Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar was lost to the pages of history. Sort of. If you were reading the Bible, you had his name. His record was never lost because it was in the Bible. But for hundreds of years, even thousands of years, that was the only record we had of him. And so it made people ask, does the Bible really know what it's talking about? Because shouldn't we have some record of Belshazzar if he really existed? Until in 1884, they uncovered the cylinder of Nabonidus. They actually uncovered four identical cylinders, all of them with the same inscription that had been buried in the foundation of a, of a millennia old building that speaks specifically about Belshazzar, a king of Babylon. And all of a sudden you come back to the Bible and say, okay, so maybe it knew what it was talking about after all. And in a sense, that's just enough to say if it was right about Belshazzar, Maybe. Maybe it is right about Daniel. If it was right about Belshazzar, maybe it is right about Jesus. And that's really why I share that with you. And honestly, if you, if you dig into the archaeology surrounding Daniel, there is so much. That's just one example. But the reason that I share that with you is because you and I having this conversation right now, this isn't just a class where we write down a bunch of historical facts and then take a quiz at the end. I want to know if God keeps his promises, what do they mean for me? Because that first promise that God is in control, like if he's not, then none of the other promises matter. Just to put it bluntly. But if he is, then I can trust him 
no matter what happens. There's a woman named Caroline who has been struggling with cancer in her life. And I know that many of you are all too familiar with that because your friend has struggled, your family member, even you yourself. And so this part will be familiar and probably painful to you, but she's reached the point where now she's asking, do I continue treatment? Is this worth it anymore? And so people in her life, friends, family, people who care about her, are trying to encourage her, talk to her, give her hope, lift her up. And one of her friends, a guy named Jim, is really thinking the same thing. What, what can I offer that provides some, some comfort, some assurance? Well, Jim happens to be a Christ follower. You know, he's a guy who believes that the Old Testament predicted Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled everything in that part of the Bible and lived it out in the New Testament so that I can trust him today. Not only in my circumstances, but, but for my regrets and my fears when I need forgiveness. And so what he is trying to share with Caroline, what she's exploring, is if it's possible that if God is who he says he is, that she has hope in this life, that God cares about her in this life, but that she could also have hope that goes beyond this life, a hope that goes to eternal life, to that time like the last page when there is no more cancer, no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. See, that's the very real place that we live. Caroline, Jim, you, me. It's why we love to see that kind of evidence because if God really is who he says he is, if he makes, makes these promises, makes these predictions and follows through, then he's told us other things about eternity that we can trust him for through Jesus Christ. But of course, Daniel's not the only story that we're going through today because while Daniel spent time in Babylon, Persia takes over Babylon. And in fact, Daniel spends time in Persia as well. And there are more people still around him just like Daniel, just like you and me, wondering, where is God really? Will I find God if I get back to Israel? Will I find God if I go to church? Like, where's the right place to stand and the right way to kneel and the right, what does it actually look like to feel like God is with me? Well, in Persia, the man who is second in command of all of Persia is a man named Haman. And he is often compared unfavorably to Hitler because Haman wanted to do whatever he could to completely destroy people just like Daniel. In fact, he made it his life's mission to exterminate all of the Jews from the Persian kingdom. And it's into that moment, a moment of incredible fear, a moment of incredible danger, that we meet a man named Mordecai. Now Mordecai was Jewish, he lived in the Persian kingdom and he had adopted a family member, his niece who he brought in as his own daughter and raised her as his own daughter. Now where this connects is that Haman doesn't realize that the queen of Persia, is Esther, adopted daughter of Mordecai, and she's Jewish. 
Well, great, problem solved, right? Because if Esther is the queen, if Esther is, I mean, doesn't that mean she's in charge of the kingdom? Certainly, this is exactly the time that God has positioned her for, that Esther could be the one to deliver the people, to save the people, to put a stop to this, to rescue everyone. And yet we find that Esther cowers. It's a fearful moment for her because there's actually a law in their kingdom that she cannot go before the king without an invitation. So it seems like it's like, he's your husband, isn't he? You're the queen, go talk to him, put a stop to this. But actually, if she goes to the king uninvited, she could be put to death. And so in this moment, it is her uncle Mordecai who comes to talk to Esther. And so this is what he says to her. He says, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Like, thanks a lot, (laughs) Uncle Mordecai. Uh, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now he's giving her a challenge that Esther has a choice to make in this moment. Is she going to try to save herself or is she willing to be the one who sacrifices to save others? You know, the question that it raises for us is a challenge. Is it possible, even as you're exploring who God is, what the Bible means, is it possible that God has positioned you in your life? The resources you have, the place that you are, maybe the position that you have for a purpose to help people in need that no one else can help. And yet Mordecai is also reminding her of a promise that even if she does nothing, relief and deliverance will come. You see, he is trusting our second promise that God promises he will bring deliverance. Now deliverance can be kind of a big religious word. Like what what does that actually mean, deliverance? We don't use that a lot. But we've heard that a number of times through Fast Track, that God delivered his people out of bondage in Egypt. That God will deliver his people from this danger in Persia. And for us, it takes on that idea that he will ultimately deliver us from pain, from sorrow, from evil, from the evil that is around us, but also from the stuff that's inside us. Those places that, that I'm not the man, the dad, the husband, the person that I wish I was. The mistakes that I've made that I wish I could undo. Let alone all of the ways that we, like the people in the Old Testament, have disobeyed God. Have not lived the way that he has wanted us to live with him. And yet he promises he will bring deliverance. And so Esther makes this incredible choice. And in that moment of fear, she says, and so I will go to the king. She will risk her own life, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Well, the, the long and, and really pretty cool story. In fact, we did a, a, a series on this called Coincidental a couple years ago. If you want to dig deeper into Esther's story, just, just an incredible picture of this woman's leadership. But the long story short is that The king does not kill her. He listens to her. And over the course of events, not only is she heard, 
but because of her influence, all of her people are saved. You see, even in this, there's a shadow of who Jesus is going to be when he comes. That he is the one who saves the people who cannot save themselves. That Jesus is the one that Esther's story points to because he is willing to actually perish, to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be delivered, so that God can be with us starting right now. That's the promise for Esther. It's fulfilled in Jesus, but it is for us too. In fact, they still celebrate this every year at a festival called Purim, how Esther's leadership and God's plan led to deliverance. But you know, Esther also wasn't the only person living in Persia. In fact, if we come back to our map, there were actually a number of Esther's people who had been able to return to the land. In fact, one of those was a man named Ezra who actually had the privilege of rebuilding the temple to go back to Israel and build the house of God. And yet we find in Ezra a man who regrets. Now maybe you know what it's like to wrestle with regret, to feel moments in your past that you wish hadn't happened. Maybe it's things that you've done. Maybe it's things that were done to you but those can tend to crowd in on us and maybe even make us wonder, is God really there? Could God really forgive me? Could these promises that I'm hearing in fast track still be true for me? You see, Ezra's regrets related to a lot of the things that were happening around him. And so what's remarkable about this is that for centuries, the temple, right, the, the house of God for the Jewish people We'll give it a little smoke for the sacrifices coming from the temple. The temple had long been a reminder to them of God's presence. Now, even when the temple was built, God told them, hey, don't forget, I'm not contained by a building. I'm not stuck in the temple. But the temple, just like the, the tent before it, the tabernacle, all of these things were a physical reminder to the people that God is with them. And yet people like Daniel, people like Esther, you know, people we saw last week like Jeremiah have found that even when you are removed from the temple, even when the physical reminder is not there, God is still with us. And so you would think, we got the temple back. So this is exciting. We have the temple back. Like surely now things will go well. We're back in the land. We've built the temple. We're in Jerusalem again. Surely this fixes things after all of that time in isolation, right? Only this is why Ezra regrets. Because <laughs> it turns out the problem was not a location. The problem was a relationship. Look at how Ezra describes it himself in Ezra chapter 9. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities, you can read that as our mistakes, that the ways that we have disobeyed God. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. We are drowning in the mistakes we've made even after all those lessons we learned in isolation. You know, maybe you know how regrets feel. And maybe you know how Ezra might have felt. He's thinking not only about himself but about the world around him. 
things that he wishes weren't that way, mistakes that he wishes the people hadn't made. And yet, just a couple of lines later, in this same book, he reminds himself of this promise. He says, for we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. Right? Like even when they were unfaithful, God was faithful. He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. See, he sees in the details of life that God is keeping a promise even when they've let God down. And then our third promise is that God promises he will show mercy. That word mercy is the idea God gives us that we don't get what we deserve. That if we have done wrong, we deserve consequences, but God offers mercy. See, and just like the prophecies of Daniel, that God is in control, that he's the king of kings are ultimately fulfilled by King Jesus. Just like Esther as a deliverer foreshadows how Jesus would save his people. The same is true of mercy. God's ultimate plan for mercy came through Jesus Christ. That he was willing to bear the consequence to essentially take on the wrath of God against evil, whether it's the massive evil, the worst thing you can think of, or even just the little white lies and the little times I try to control my own life instead of let God be in control. That Jesus steps in for us, essentially takes the punishment. I mean, talk about a friend so that we receive mercy. That we don't receive what we deserve, but that God offers us blessing and joy and peace and kindness and friendship and to be with us. And that's really the core message of the Bible. That's why, yes, it's a promise for eternity, that through Jesus there's a promise of eternal life, but it starts right now. That mercy, like it did in Ezra's life, can start right now. You see, they didn't only rebuild the temple. In fact, one of Ezra's friends, a man named Nehemiah, was also able to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem itself. But sort of like Ezra regretted, Nehemiah dwells. See, Nehemiah dwells on his problems, his anxiety. Nehemiah also dwells on his hopes. You see, Nehemiah actually served the king of Persia. And what he found out was that when God has a plan, God will fulfill his plan. In fact, not only did Nehemiah manage to build the wall to recircle Jerusalem with a wall of stone that would protect them for centuries, but he did it on the king's dime. The king of Persia actually provided the resources to build the wall. And so God's people were able to come back into the land that he'd given them. Remembering again that God is not stuck in Israel. God is not stuck behind the wall. God is not stuck in the temple, but he created these things to show us, to show Nehemiah, to show Ezra, to show their children for generations. God wants you to have a physical reminder of his promise. That when you see this land, when you see this building, when you see this wall, 
when you see this book, that you can touch it, you can turn its pages, you can read it, you have a reminder that God wants to be with you. God wants to keep his promises, not just to Nehemiah, he wants to keep them to you too. In fact, the way that Nehemiah describes this is is kind of amazing. Because check this out, early in his book, he says, so I said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Like we we got the king's help, but we've got God's help. We, his servants, will arise and build. And then for several chapters, it's all the opposition they face, all of the people who try to stop them. There's a point where they are laying brick with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because they know they're under attack. Like it is difficult and yet after decades of not being able to get back and rebuild, they complete the wall in a record 52 days. In fact, just earlier this year, Chad did a series called 52 Day Plan, walking through just the life lessons that Nehemiah learned about talking to God in just brief moments, seeing how God may have a plan for you to lead like Nehemiah did. And so Nehemiah and the people do exactly this. They arise, they build, they take it on, they power down, they get it done. It's it's an incredible story. But when it's finished, he describes it this way. So the wall was finished. Then he describes all the people around them. They perceived that this work was done by our God. Really? I mean, weren't you the one with the trowel and the sword? Aren't you the one dragging the bricks? Aren't, aren't you the one who was sweating in broad daylight as the enemy is approaching? And yet he sees every piece of it as something that God did. See, and that's the really cool kind of tension. But also, comfort, peace of what it looks like to have relationship with God. That these aren't just things that happen to us, happen by us, happen for us. They're things that God does with us. That's the promise that Nehemiah knew. God promises he will be with us. Nehemiah sees it all through his own story. In fact, it's, it's kind of incredible. But if you go to Israel today, this is a picture of the Temple Mount. And there's no temple there anymore. <laughs> there's, there's a mosque with a really pretty golden roof. So what does that mean? God is not here anymore? Well, no, we, we talked about this, right? God wasn't stuck in the temple. In fact, you can go, it, it's actually underground because of how much history has passed now, but there's a tour you can take underground, underneath the Temple Mount and walk along massive stones that were laid by Nehemiah and his crew that are still there and see the evidence of the work that God did. And yet we are told, you and I, I'm talking about us now in 2021, we are told that we don't need a temple. It was a shocking message to people who were so familiar with the Old Testament and all of this important stuff that God had built. But he tells them that because of Jesus, they don't need a temple anymore. 
He tells them that the temple was a reminder of God's presence with them, that the temple was, was a physical display of how God is going to provide for forgiveness. Through all of the sacrifices that would happen in the temple, all of the reminders through history that God brings mercy and God brings deliverance and God is in control and God is with us, all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. I was talking to my friend Josh a couple of weeks ago. We were, we were having breakfast and he was describing for me what his process of discovery with God has been like in his life. And, and I was kind of wrestling with some of these thoughts because I, I feel like a lot of times I get caught in this place where it's like, if I want God to be happy, I do these things for God. And then I say, God, was that good enough? And maybe I don't mean to do it that way, but it, it kind of happens. And there's a lot of things in our culture and in other world religions that say that is how we should think about God. But Josh told me that as he's gone through his life, what he discovered was he actually read a book that was showing how we can sometimes use the wrong preposition if you really want to fine tune it when we talk about God. So just as one example, it isn't that I do things for God. Right? Like I go over here and do it and try to be a good boy and whatever and hand it back to God. I go over here and start a business and try to be generous and be a nice person and hand it back to God and say, what do you think? What Josh told me, what, what he's been thinking through, what he's found in his own life as he has started his own business, as he's found himself successful, as he's had great mentors and become a great mentor, is that they're not things he's doing for God. They're things he's doing with God. You could probably guess from our conversation today that that struck a chord with me. Then instead of waking up and trying to be a good person, I get to wake up and say, good morning, God. What do you want to do today? You want to be nice to my wife with me? Okay, I'll work on that. You want to be patient with my kids with me? Okay, I'll, I'll work on that. You want, to, you want to do this together because you are with me? Yeah, I want, to, I want to be with you too. I want it to be like that, a relationship. And I know that that can sound foreign. It can sound unfamiliar. It can sound like, how do I get started? Well, honestly, one of the best ways to get started may be something you've already been doing. Just getting a better sense of what God's promises are. It may even be that coming out of this series, you just want to read one of the books about Jesus' life. There are four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, in one of them, in Matthew, this is how specific God gets about how he's fulfilling this. He actually tells us Jesus is God with us. It says in Matthew 1.23 that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So as we wrap up our series today, in just a moment, we're going to hear a song. And this song talks about the idea of being able to know that I lived, of living life to the fullest. And the songwriter actually wrote it for his son when he was born, that he wanted his son to be willing to take chances to explore things. And so maybe as you listen to it today, you think about the chance you might take on God, the chance you might take to, to read more in the Bible, to explore that, to find the evidence. And maybe you just pick one of these promises today to help you trust God with us to help you trust that he wants to know you that way through Jesus who fulfills all of the fast track promises. Maybe like Daniel, you want to trust that God is in control. And maybe like Esther, you want to trust 
Jesus for your deliverance. You know, maybe like Ezra, you want to trust that despite all of the regrets you may have, God still has mercy available to you because of Jesus, God with us. Or maybe like Nehemiah, you just need that reminder today that you don't have to dwell on the fears, but you can dwell with God. So let's pray that way and then enjoy this song together. God, thank you for putting these promises on the page. Thank you for putting this evidence into the Bible and the world around us so that we could begin to understand your faithfulness in the past and trust you for our future. Lord, I am thankful to you for what Jesus has done for me. Lord, I pray that anybody who's hearing this, watching this, thinking about this today, even listening to this last song, that you might speak to them through your word in their heart to have a relationship with you and know the joy of God with us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.